are here. So if you've been with us recently, uh, you know that we've been working our way through the book of Deuteronomy. So go ahead and find your way to Deuteronomy chapter 10. That's where we're going to be at this week. And uh, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and find your way there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one underneath of your chair. Uh, You can find that Bible and turn to page 92. That's where we're going to be at in those Bibles. I can't help you if you brought your own Bible, whatever page you're on. Mine's 178. I don't know that that helps anybody. But Last week, uh, just a a quick review because we kind of hit the ground running really quick here this week. Last week, we talked about uh, Moses, and Michael looked at how this whole incident where Moses went up the mountain to speak with God, and he received the Ten Commandments, and God was writing those down on the tablets. And while Moses is up on the mountain interacting with God, the people are busy breaking the Ten Commandments. They didn't get far into this relationship, this having the Ten Commandments before they had broken them. And so as Moses comes down the mountain, they had built a golden calf, a golden statue that they were worshiping, and Moses gets angry, and God gets angry. And so when we left last week's passage in Deuteronomy chapter 9, we see God angered to the point where their sin deserved to be punished. And God's telling Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. This people has sinned and sinned and sinned and put other things above me and has ignited his anger and his wrath. And he was ready to to wipe them out and start over. He was going to give Moses a new group of people and make a new nation. And those people were going to get to be his special people. And we see Moses right at the end of the chapter pleading with God, saying, God, don't destroy them. God, they... I know they deserve it, but don't wipe them out. God, be merciful. But we don't see any sort of conclusion. And then we pick up in chapter 10, and we just continue on about our story. And God gives Moses another set of the tablets, and they're headed towards the promised land. So what happened? I think it's important for us, before we just move forward and assume our way into what happened, to really look at it and take a moment and consider, because I think this is something that can trip up a lot of people today. Can trip up a lot of people because it seems like we see God, excuse me, see God have an apparent change of heart. We see what seems like flip-flopping. God says, I'm going to kill him, and then he doesn't, and he just kind of forgives them and lets them go about being his people. So what happened between Deuteronomy 9 and Deuteronomy 10? So we get just a real quick summary of it in the middle of our chapter. So we're going to read verses 10 and 11 as we start, and then we'll go back and start at the beginning of the chapter. Deuteronomy 10, verses 10 and 11, it says, I moreover stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time. And the Lord listened to me that time also, and the Lord was not willing to destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. There's a few different instances in the Bible where it seems like we see God change his mind, and a couple of different places that we see that. First one is Moses and Israel. We see this same story in Exodus 32, and then we see it again here in Deuteronomy 9 and 10. We also see it in the book of Jonah. As Jonah, if you are familiar with the story, Jonah was a missionary that was told to go to the great city of Nineveh, and Nineveh was an evil town, was an evil city, and God wanted Jonah to go and to preach the good news and call those people to repentance, and Jonah was resistant. But 
we see God send Jonah there, and when Jonah goes there and very reluctantly preaches about who God is and, and what God wants to do, they repent and they uh, are spared. God doesn't pour out the judgment that he said he was going to pour out on them. It seems like he changed his mind. We also see in 1 Samuel 15, God saying he regrets making Saul the king of Israel. We see him seemingly changing his mind. I'm going to make Saul the king. Wait, now I regret making Saul the king. So there's a few things, a few ideas that are clear in Scripture that are important for us as we try to consider what in the world does all this mean that we need to remember. First thing is that God knows all things. The big fancy word for that that we use is that he's omniscient. He knows everything. There's no new information for God. When this happened and Moses prayed, it wasn't like God didn't know that Moses was going to pray. It's not like he didn't know that the Israelites were going to go and sin again. It's not like he didn't know all of these things. God knows everything. And so God doesn't get new information and change his mind based on some new revelation like we might. We also know that God never changes, that there's nothing inside of God that is ever getting better or getting worse. God is absolutely perfect, and you can't make perfect more perfect, and you can't make perfect less perfect. So God is unchanging, and the big word that we use for that is that he's immutable. And finally, we know from Scripture after Scripture after Scripture that God is love and that he desires repentance from people. So as we take all those things and we look at what's going on here in our book, there's times where God does what I find myself doing as a parent sometimes. There are times where I ask my children to do something and they go, no. They, they, they start to develop that opinion, that strong will, and I tell them, you need to go upstairs and clean your room. Uh-uh. And so what's the next response? You're going to be disciplined. You're going to get in trouble. And then they run off upstairs and they clean their room, right? You guys ever seen that interaction before? Parents, grandparents, go do this. No, I don't want to. You're going to get in trouble. And they go and do it. Well, then how do I respond? I, don't, I said that I was going to punish them, but I don't actually punish them because their behavior changed, right? Well, that's kind of the same thing that we see here with God. Sometimes God spells it out really specifically. He says, if you will repent, then I will not carry out the threat of judgment that I'm telling you. He doesn't always add that qualifier, but sometimes he goes and very clearly spells that out for them. We see that clearly in Jonah 4 as the first few chapters of the book of Jonah have been Jonah either being resistant to go and to share the good news or sharing the good news in Nineveh. And then in chapter 4, Jonah's kind of, he's missing the mark, but he's wagging his finger at God saying, see, this is why I didn't want to go and tell all the people in Nineveh about who you are and call them to repent because I knew that you're a forgiving God. I know that you're a loving God and I knew that if I went in there and I told them who you are and told them that they needed to repent, you were going to forgive them and you weren't going to destroy them and you weren't going to give them the punishment that they deserve because Jonah had some, some wickedness in his heart as well. But Jonah was angry and was mad at God because he said, I knew that. I knew it. You're a loving God. You always run around forgiving people, and you were going to forgive them. And it's exactly what God did. God forgave those evil, wicked people in the city of Nineveh because if they would repent, then he wasn't going to carry out the threat of judgment 
when Scripture tells us about God relenting or, or changing His mind, really what it's saying is that uh, He changes His mind in regards to punishment. It's never that God changes His mind or changes His course when He promises something good. There's never an instance where God says, I'm going to do this good thing, and then He goes, nah, I changed my mind. I'm going to punish you now. It's always, 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 every single time we see God changing or relenting, it's God said, you deserve to be judged. And then because of repentance or because of a change of heart or because of someone like Moses praying for the people, we see him pull back and not give them the punishment that they deserved. We see here that a prayer of repentance from Moses, and I would assume a posture of repentance from the people of Israel, while we don't see it here explicitly, that changed the outcome of how God was interacting with them. Change was not ultimately with God. While it might seem like God changed, the the change was not ultimately with God. It was with humanity. It was the conduct of humanity, of God's people, that changed towards God. Not the conduct of God that changed towards the people. Their responding differently means that God responded differently. And so God was consistent in his behavior and his character all along. God didn't change. God's desire was always that they would repent, that they would do what he is asking them to do. It was just that they were finally willing to do it that changed the way that he interacted with them. So with that in mind, let's look at the first big chunk of our passage. We're going to look at the first half of Deuteronomy 10. We're going to go from verses 1 through 11. At that time, the Lord said to me, Cut off for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones, and come up to me on the mountain, and make an ark of wood for yourself. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, and cut out two tablets of stone like the former ones, and went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. He wrote on the tablets like the former writing, the Ten Commandments which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain, from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. Now the sons of Israel set out from Beeroth, Benichakan, to Masherah. There Aaron died and was buried, and Eleazar his son ministered as priest in his place. From there they set out to Gudgoda, and from Gudgoda to Jothbethah a land of brooks, and water, brooks of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to serve him, and to bless his name in his name until the, this day. Therefore, Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke to him. And I, moreover, stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time. The Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was not willing to destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. If we were to flip back and look at Exodus 32, we see the same story, and we see in Exodus that this is a long process, that this is a a, kind of a a big thing that happens, and the summary that we get here in Deuteronomy is, is just that. It's kind of the highlights version. It's just a summary of the fact that The covenant was renewed, that even though God 
in the process of giving the Israelites the Ten Commandments and, and writing those down for Moses on the tablets and sending him down and that they had already broken the covenant, we see after their repentance and after Moses cries out to the Lord and asks for their forgiveness and God forgives them, we see the covenant and the promise that God had made with his people. It's renewed. It's refreshed. They, they double down on the agreement that they had made. And I think when we look at this, we see that there's still a place even for us today for acts of corporate renewal, for acts of renewing our commitment and saying, God, I know that, that when I was younger, maybe years ago, maybe many years ago, I told you that I wanted to live for you and that I wanted you to be my Lord and my King and the boss in my life. But there's still a place for us that every day we make that renewal. That when we gather together, there are times where we say, God, I know I told you that you were king in my life, but I want you to still be king today. That we renew and we remember and we double down on our commitment that we made to the Lord. Sometimes there's symbolic reminders. Those tablets that Moses took up the mountain and God made, the second set of stone tablets, those would become very important tablets. Those would become a very important symbol of God loving and interacting with his people. Because if you're familiar with the rest of the Old Testament, that box that Moses came down and put the tablets into that box, that was the Ark of the Covenant. That was the box that, that they would carry from place to place. And as they were worshiping in the temple, that box represented the presence of God with his people. That box represented the power of God, that when they, there were times where they took that box into battle with them and they won the battle because God was with them. There's times where they tried to use God and, and, and use that box as something special and it backfired on them. There's lots of cool stuff in the rest of the Old Testament. Read it, it's good. But those boxes, that, that box, those tablets became a beautiful symbol that reminded them of what God had done, the covenant that they had made with God, the, the special relationship that they had with God's people. And Deuteronomy 10 does such an incredible job of pointing out in the first half that we just read the symbolic religion that they went and they got that second set of tablets and they brought it down and that was special to them because it reminded them of what God had done in the past while also showing us that just symbols are not enough on their own. That just doing the right religious things were not sufficient on their own. Those symbols and those renewals meant very little if they were just religious things that they did. And so the second half of Deuteronomy chapter 10 talks about a religion of the heart. Not just an external religion where we do the right things, but a religion of their heart where, where their hearts were changed where their hearts looked different because of what God had done in their life and in their family, the people of Israel. So all of this first part, verses 1 through 11, leads us to verse 12, where God tells them very clearly what is required of them. And that's a heart religion that majors on obedience. So let's look at verses 12 and 13. It says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. 
this little chunk right here, this, these couple of verses, they launch us into kind of a separate section in the book of Deuteronomy. The rest of chapter 10 and all of chapter 11 kind of talk about the same thing. And in that section, Moses mentions the word heart, the importance of the heart of a person. He mentions it five different times in this next chapter and a half. He makes it clear that God wants more than just our religious obedience. He wants more than just external things that we do. He wants us to do more than just say the right things and go to church at the right times and give and, and, and do the right things. If we just do the right things but our heart is not there, it's a hollow religion and not obedience to a God that we love and care to follow. And so he talks time and time and time again about how important the heart is. Verses 12 and 13, they do such a great job. If you've missed any of our series so far, just read verse 12 and verse 13 a whole bunch of times, and you'll get most of what the message of Deuteronomy is. If we could summarize the book of Deuteronomy, that's, that's it. Moses sums it up in two very simple verses, and he, he reminds the people how great our God is and why it's so important for them to obey. In verse 13, he says that our obedience is for our own good. And he asks the question in these verses, what does the Lord require of you? And he spells out very clearly five very specific things that we've seen several different times already in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to see several more. What does the Lord require of you? Number one, to fear the Lord your God. John MacArthur kind of puts these in simple terms for us. And he said that to fear the Lord your God is to hold God in awe and submit to him. The idea of fearing the Lord is mentioned 14 different times in the book of Deuteronomy. It's kind of important. He also mentions that we should walk in all of his ways, and that's to conduct our life in accordance with the will of God. That idea comes up 10 different times in the book of Deuteronomy. It tells us that God requires that we would love him that we choose to set our affections on the Lord and on Him alone, that there's nothing that we love more than we love God. And that idea comes up eight different times in the book of Deuteronomy. He also tells us that we should serve the Lord our God, that we have the worship of the Lord as the central focus in our life, that there's nothing that's more important to us than loving the Lord and worshiping Him, that we would serve him above anything else. And finally, the last thing that we should do that God requires from us is that we would keep the commandments of the Lord. That means to obey the requirements that God has given to us. And that word to keep is the word that Ryan Shoemaker talked about a month or two ago, and I've talked about several different times. It's the Hebrew word shamar. And that word shamar, to keep, to, to be careful to do these things, it comes up 65 different times talking about how we should be careful to keep the commandments of God. 65 different times in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy as a whole talks about how great God is and how the, the great things that God has done for the people of Israel in the past and how because of how great God is and how wonderfully God has loved them and how overwhelmingly God has taken care of them and done everything that they needed, because of all of that, the only response that is reasonable for his people is to love him and for him to be the most important thing in their life and for them to obey all of the things that he's commanded them. That if he really is God and they really are his people, 
his way is best. That trusting him and doing what he says is ultimately going to be for their benefit. So we keep going through the chapter. Verses 14 through 19, they have two little sections in here. And it was described, something I was reading, described this section as two matching triplets that I think kind of communicates well what, uh, what's going on here. So each triplet, verses 14 through 16 are the first triplet, and then 17 through 19 are the second triplet. And each one of these sections contains a description of who God is. It contains a description of something surprising that God has done. And then it, descri- it, it includes a description of Israel's appropriate response to who God is and to what he's done. It gives us a picture of who he is, of what he's done, and what do we do with it? How should we respond based on what we've seen from God? So the first triplet, let's look at verses 14, 15, and 16. Triplet number one talks about circumcising their hearts. Verse 14, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in them. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples as it is this day. So, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck. Become stubborn no longer. We see here in these verses, Moses is pointing out that God had chosen to love the people of Israel. He had chosen these Jewish people, Abraham's family. He had chosen these people as his special people that he had chosen to love them and that he had chosen to pour out all of these good gifts and this protection and all that he's done for them up to this point. These are his special people. These are his special people that he loves. Verse 15, it says, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. He said, you guys are special in the eyes of God. You guys are different than all of the other people groups in the world in the eyes of God, that He loves you. And ultimately, we really don't know why He chose that they were special. There was nothing overwhelmingly good about these people. We've seen, if we've followed along with the story of the people of Israel, it's not because they were incredibly obedient that God chose to love them. They didn't follow the rules. They didn't follow the expectations. They didn't keep their end of the covenant of the promise. They, they didn't. They missed it a lot. They messed up and broke the rules a lot. Maybe it's because they were powerful and they, well, no. God says that they were smaller and weaker and less in number than all of these nations that they were getting ready to go into the promised land and drive out. So it's not because they obeyed really well. It's not because they were big and powerful. We, we don't really know why other than the fact that God chose to love them. It just says that God chose to set his affections on them. And in the same way, the New Testament talks about the same mystery for us. It talks about the same mystery that we really don't know why God chooses to love us. There's nothing good in me. I can can stand up here. I could use the rest of our time today to tell you guys all the reasons why God shouldn't love a person like me that I fall short of God's perfect standards so often, I miss the mark. I do things because they're what I want, not because they're what God wants. I do things selfishly. I break God's commandments far more often than I should. 
But God chooses to love me. And God chooses to love you if you'll receive his gift of salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 talks about that. Romans 9 talks about that. It talks about how there's nothing in us that we deserve to be saved, but God chooses to love us anyways. And so Deuteronomy 10, we see this idea that God loves them even though they don't deserve it. But what do they do with that now? How do we respond to that reality that God chooses to love us? And in verse 16, Moses presents the essential implication of election. God chose you and God looked at you and God set his love on you, so how do you respond? And the only reasonable response for us is a genuine working out of our faith. Moses talks about circumcision. Now, circumcision was something that was really important to the people of Israel because circumcision was an outside symbol of the fact that they were part of God's special family. God commanded Abraham and all of his family after them to do this physical sign that would show you're a part of my people group. This was a religious thing that they did, that they obeyed, because they were a part of this special family that God loved. But as we talked about a few minutes ago, outside religion, us just doing the right things, is not enough on its own. It's not enough for us to just do the right stuff. It's great that you're here at church on a Sunday morning. It's great that you read your Bible. It's great that you are a generous person. Those are all good things that God tells us to do, but it's not enough on its own. Moses tells the people that he wants their heart. God's here this morning telling you he wants your heart. He doesn't just want you to do the right things and say the right things. He wants our hearts to be fully devoted to him and fully given to him. Ezekiel chapter 11 talks about this same idea. In Ezekiel 11 verses 19 and 20 it says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Moses is talking about this circumcision of their hearts. Ezekiel is talking about this new heart that God puts within us and that, that heart is a heart that God can easily penetrate, that he can easily speak to and that the love that we have for God that we talked about in Deuteronomy 6 and in other places, that love for God is bigger than our love for the sinful desires that we might have. That love for God is bigger than the love for anything else that might try to creep its way into our life. Their passionate love for God should shudder and shake at the core of who they are about the idea that they would do anything that would upset or fall short of what God had asked from them because God is so incredible and so amazing and so powerful. And he chose to love them. And the only acceptable response for us to that reality, that big, powerful, awesome, loving God chose to love little old me, the only acceptable response that Moses says they get to have and the only acceptable response that I'm here telling you that we get to have is giving God everything that we can. That doesn't mean that we obey perfectly, but that means that at the core of who we are, everything inside of me wants to do what God wants. Everything inside of me wants to be the person that God wants me to be. Everything inside of me trusts that when God says this way is best, 
I trust him because just like kids have to trust their parents and trust that my, my kids have to trust that I have their best interests at heart. They have to trust that I know what's best and, and they have to do what I say sometimes even if they don't understand it. That's the way that we're called to obey and to love and to follow our God, our King that chose to love us. I may not always understand. I may not always think that it's what's best, but you know what? I know that God is in control. I know that God is big and powerful and loves me a whole lot. And if he does that, then I'm going to trust what he says is best. I'm going to obey him and, and everything that's in me, my heart should be different because I know that God loves me and I love him. Let's look at the second triplet, verses 17, 18, and 19. And triplet 2 talks about how we should show love to outsiders. Verse 17, it says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor takes a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. The first triplet that we looked at in 14, 15, and 16 talked about God's electing love, talked about how he chose me and chose you and chose the people of Israel, not because of anything that we deserved, but because he just chose to be loving and to be merciful. And the second triplet here talks about, it focuses on the greatness and the holiness of God. The word here that it uses to describe him is the word awesome which we talked about a few weeks ago, but that word awesome is one that's become very popular today for us to mean, man, that was really good, or I really liked that, or man, that was, that was awesome, that movie was awesome, that cheeseburger was awesome. You might really like it, but the word awesome means a lot more. The word awesome can be translated more clearly as awe-inspiring, or to be dreadful or to be feared. It, it's so overwhelming that it shakes us to the core. So the thrust of Deuteronomy 10.17, that verse, is that God is mighty and powerful and fearsome. That should change something inside of us. And then the, after the truth of who God is, what it talks about, what do we do with that? says that God, in that powerful position of who he is, says that he's on the side of the needy, that he's on the side of the less fortunate. It says that God loves the sojourner, that God loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Sojourners are people who don't have the norms of society going for them. They're people who don't have the government machine looking out for them and taking care of them because they're outsiders. So for us today, the best picture that we've got of that would be uh, refugees and immigrants that can be considered sojourners for us. I think there's two important things for us to remember here and make sense of everything that Scripture says about this as we try to deal with something that's very common for us that we see living in 2019, almost 2020 in Southern California. Those two things that we have to remember are, number one, Romans 13 talks about how God has put all authority in place, that nothing is there except for who God put there. And so that means that if our government tells us that these are the rules, 
then God has put that government and those officials in place and we should follow the rules. So we should never condone people doing things illegally. And that includes people uh, getting around the rules to enter into a country. We should never condone people going into another country illegally. But neither should we condone abusing and overlooking and uh, taking advantage of the people that don't have the government standing up for them. We shouldn't just overlook and act unjustly towards aliens, towards the sojourners, towards the weak in society. This passage talks about how God loves and looks out for and takes care of those who can't take care of themselves. And he includes orphans, he includes widows, he includes sojourners in that list. So what do we do with that? How do we deal with that as a church? How should I act differently and you act differently towards people because of what God has said here? Well, I think, I think the reality is something that we looked at just a few verses earlier. That God, big, powerful, mighty, incredible God, chose to love me and chose to have mercy on me and chose to show grace to me that, that I deserved punishment, but God didn't give it to me. And instead of giving me what I deserved in punishment, he chose to give me love. He chose to give me grace. He chose to give me uh, all of the, the benefits of being adopted as his son. All of those things. If I understand how great and how merciful God, big, powerful God has been to me, little old me that doesn't deserve it, we should act in the same way towards other people. We should live generously just like we have received generously. We should give sacrificially just like God sacrificed His Son on our behalf. God's not asking us to do anything that He wasn't willing to do before. God has given and given and given to us. And if we truly understand that, and if we truly grasp what that means in our lives, the only acceptable response here, and what Moses says here for his people, applies for us today. If we have received much, we should give much. So our triplets give us two very clear and two very important responses that we should have to God. The first one is that because of his amazing love that caused the Lord of creation to save us, we must be totally devoted to him. And the second thing is that because the mighty and fearsome God is committed to the needy, we must be committed to the needy as well. If not, we will face the wrath of that holy God. God's love shouldn't be the only thing that prompts us to be devoted to Him and to follow Him and to obey Him. But it's a really important thing, and it's a really significant trigger for us. If we understand how much we've been loved, we should love God back. And similarly, God's awesome power and His desire to stand up for the needy should motivate us to care for the poor and the needy. We're going to look at the last couple of verses as we wrap up here in the last minute or two. Verses 20 through 22, it says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Moses never gets tired all throughout the, things that, the books that he writes. He never gets tired of reminding the people how incredible God is, 
how incredibly God has loved them, about how incredibly God has gone above and beyond anything that they deserved to give and to give and to give generously to his people. And because God has been so good to them, the only reasonable response for them is to give everything that they have back to him. That's what this whole passage boils down to. We started and picked up the story this week at the start of chapter 10 with a God who was angry at these people because they had disobeyed again. They had broken the expectations and the covenant that God had made with them again, and they had absolutely missed the mark. But throughout the course of this chapter, we see again God, big, powerful, loving God, pour out lovingly on people that didn't deserve it. Renew the covenant, renew the promise with his people, even though they time and time again missed the mark. So for us today, the only reasonable response that we can give in response to that is that because God has loved us so much, we should give our hearts fully. We should have new, soft, tender hearts inside of us that are circumcised, that, are, that, that, that the things that we love are the things that God loves. The things that we desire are the things that God desires. The things that we do should be the things that God wants us to do because we understand how much he loved us. And the other thing is that it mentions is that we should, we should live generously. If we've received much, we should be willing to give much. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for, God, for the way that you have been so generous to us. God, the way that you have given and given and given to a group of people that is far from deserving of your mercy. God, we pray that, that as we look at your word, as we consider how you have called us to fear you and to love you and to obey your commandments because they are for our good, God, we pray that we would God, that we would act that way. God, that we would love you and fear you and obey you to the core of who we are. God, that in our depths of our heart, God, that you would be the one that is on the throne of our lives. God, that you would be the one that is above everything else that we desire. God, we offer our lives to you. As Paul said in Romans 12, we offer our lives as our spiritual act of worship. God, we lay ourselves down as a sacrifice. God, take everything that I am, everything that I have, everything inside of me, use it for your work, and God, we pray that you would be pleased with us when you look at us. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. We love you. Amen.